Open our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our minds to the understanding of your gospel teachings. Implant also on us the fear of your blessed commandments, so that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things that are well pleasing to you. For you are the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto you we ascribe glory, together with the Father who is from everlasting, and your holy, good, and life-creating spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Wisdom and ten, let us listen to the Holy Gospel. Peace be to all. Reading is from the Holy Gospel according to Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep at His right hand, but the goats at the left. Then the King will say to those at His right hand, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those in his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please, sir. Well, we're already here. 
We're already here. One week left before we enter Great Lent. Next Sunday being the expulsion of Adam and Eve from paradise. Next Sunday being Cheese Fair Sunday. Today it is Meat Fair. We now begin to refrain from all meat until the great and glorious Pascha of our Lord, the Sunday of the Last Judgment. We are at the threshold of the school of repentance. We are already at the gates. This is the gospel favor given to us today from the church. It is a pretty nerve-wracking thing, very um, disarming thing, to read this gospel, as, I, and as I'm sure it is to hear this gospel. We are always encouraged, and we are always inspired to hear about God's mercy and his love. We're not so inspired and encouraged when we hear about the judgment, how we have what we have done with the things God has given to us. We will have to give an answer someday for the gifts, the blessings that he has bestowed upon us one day at the consummation of all times. This lesson comes later on in the Gospel of St. Matthew. It comes just before the Last Supper of Christ with his apostles. The multitudes have all... It is, the context is obviously Holy Week in Jerusalem. The multitudes have already heard. They have already heard about not following after counterfeit Christs. They have already heard about the parable of the fig tree, about the faithful versus the wicked servant, about the wise and the foolish babies, about the parable of the talents, about the stinging rebuke that Christ gave to the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you! Blind guides, hypocrites, that whole string of admonitions that he said to the scribes and the Pharisees, who were supposed to lead Israel to the righteousness of God, but did not. They did not. They were more concerned about themselves. All of these things, all these things, these parables, these teachings, these lessons, the image of the, great, of the last judgment right there before us in that icon, all summed up in a wonderful document from the first century. It's called the Didache. Uh, uh, didactic means teaching. Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. This is one of the earliest te Christian texts that we know of. It far precedes the epistles of St. Paul. And it probably even precedes the composition of the four Gospels themselves. A wonderful need to read it. Very short. Very succinct. But it begins like this. There are two ways way of life and the way of death. And there is a great difference between the two of them. The way of life and the way of death. Not a lot of ambiguity here. It's pretty much cut and dry. It's pretty much black and white. And with this lesson of the Last Judgment, we are now able to get a peek, just a peek, of the things that lie ahead and even what might be the final outcome of our lives. The final outcome of our lives. We are given just a little glimpse, a little look through the people at to the end times and the consummation of all creation from the very beginning in paradise and creation to the very beginning of eternity for all time. We see in all of these teachings and especially in this lesson today, we see the um, telos of the cosmos, the telos, that is the trajectory, 
the very reason by which all things were called into being, the trajectory of the creation. St. John Climacus, six centuries later, refines, refines for us these two ways. He refines them. And he began, it's the very first step on his ladder of divine ascent, and is entitled the renunciation of life. That is, the renunciation of worldly life. And he says, for all reason-endowed beings who have been given the dignity of free will, and, and he, 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 said, he refines these two ways by putting them in a, 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 what, it's a differential of relationships towards God. A, a, a very subtle gradation that we can see in, in people, how they relate to God. He says, the first are the friends of God, pretty much the angels. He says, secondly, there are the true servants of God. They are the ones who do his will without question or hesitation. There are the, un, there are the unfaithful servants of God. He said, those are, those are they who think they are worthy of the, of the mystery of baptism, but have not guarded their covenant with him. Then there are the strangers of God. Those who, that's pretty much, are the unbelievers and the heretics. And he says, and then finally there are the enemies of God. The enemies of God, those people who make war against those who wish to obey the commandments of God. So we have these things, this gradation, if you will, in, how, in the relationship that we can have with God and how it separates us, basically into those two ways, the way of life and the way of death. Today we are presented with a very stark contrast, a very stark contrast, very disturbing contrast, not just between the sheep and the goats. We are confronted with a contrast between God's mercy and God's justice. God's mercy and God's justice. Harder to reconcile, very hard to comprehend, very difficult to embrace. God's infinite mercy and love towards mankind and his just judgment that we just heard about right now, just a few moments ago in the gospel. What does it mean? How do we understand? How, how do we weigh these two aspects? Uh, how, do, how can they be held in tension? Church history is a long history so far, 2,000 years. How we approach this tension has been can be broken down to two different ways. One is the Latin Western tradition, which approaches the last judgment, approaches all of these uh, teachings and parables of Christ before his passion in a juridical way. Juridical. As one priest used to say, it kind of reduces the gospel to the message of crime and punishment. Crime and punishment. In some respects, it's an extension even after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, an extension of the Levitical law, the do's and the don'ts that will get you into the kingdom of heaven. The extreme distortion of this tradition, of this approach to the last judgment, is the pro with the reformers and Calvin and the Protestants, predestination. You are either born to be condemned to evil or you are born for the kingdom of God. It's like being born, a born criminal, predestination. 
That's it. One or the other. Of course, uh, that's just the extreme in the, in the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformers. Um, the primary, uh, uh, what? The, the people who advocated, people who taught this juridical method primarily would be Augustine. Augustine, original sin, uh, and Thomas Aquinas, the Summa Theologica. I tried to read that once. Wow. <laughs> that's like hitting a wall. It is huge. But it, again, it reduces the gospel into basically a, a legalistic approach to the judgment, a legalistic approach to the kingdom of God, a legalistic approach to the spiritual life. The other approach is the orthodox approach, the older approach, the, uh, uh, the eastern approach. And it looks upon judgment as therapeutic, therapeutic and redemptive. Yes, nobody but the righteous will be able to come into the presence of God and abide with him. But the unrighteous may not be unrighteous forever. They may not be unrighteous forever. Here you have this idea that God's goal is the perfection of the universe through every single person he has called into being. The great distortion of this, the Eastern approach, is apocatastasis, means universalism. All men will be saved, no matter what you do, no matter what you think, no matter what you believe. All will be saved. It's all going to be good. <laughs> that is a distortion that got origin into trouble. The proponents of the orthodox eschatology, we're talking about Christian eschatology here, of what you think and teach about the last times, the, eternal, uh, the eternity, uh, the major proponents of this were um, Origen, for one. You had the Cappadocians, St. Gregory of Nyssa. You had Maximus the Confessor, St. Gregory of Palamas. Major proponents of this redemptive, restorative vision of what the judgment entails. And the Pacotasis, of course, is that extreme extor uh, distortion of it. Origen was condemned at the Ecumenical Council of Constantinople II, Ecumenical Council in Constantinople, 5th century. St. Gregory of Nyssa skated really close to the edge, but um, he still had this sense of the overwhelming love of God that in time, in time, all resistance and rebellions against the love of God will melt away like the snow and ice of winter before the radiance, the warmth, the brilliance of the summer sun of God's love. But still, well, I was just thinking right now, one interesting thing is St. John Chrysostom takes a completely different approach. He kind of dodges the whole eschatological, eschatological question altogether, <laughs> which is unlike St. John. He was the great moralist of the church, St. John Chrysostom from Antioch. Uh, and the Antiochian school of thought, of theology, tends to be more practical and moralistic. And St. John Chrysostom, of course, is the forefront of that. That he taught uh, on this gospel teaching, he taught after pretty much raising the hearer, raising the hearer to a very high level and bringing before him into his sight the judgment seat and all of, all of mankind before him. This incredible spectacle raises the hearer to this level, to this vision. It's kind of like the curtain rising, uh, uh, rising at the great spectacle of a tremendous opera like Aida at the Met. 
this is this wonderful spectacle that's getting over here. And St. John basically says, what does this last judgment tell us? What does this last judgment mean for us here and now? And he says, it should reveal to us what little is asked of us in exchange for such a great reward of the kingdom of heaven. What little is asked of us in order to receive the great reward of the kingdom of heaven. And of course, kind of in the back of his mind, he's thinking of that one passage where Christ says, even he who offers even these little ones, that means his disciples, even a cup of water, will not lose their reward. Love, care for your brother. Love and care to meet his needs. Be mindful of one another. Do what you can to help them, to, to, uh, to assist them, to help them on the way. This is all that God asks of us in exchange for the kingdom of heaven. So which is, is it mercy or is it justice? There are tons of scriptural passages in the scripture, teachings of the fathers, that will support either one. They will well support either approach that you want to take to when you want to think about and, can come and reflect upon the great judgment of Christ. I would say it is both. It is neither one or the other, but it is both. God's mercy is infinite. God's justice is just. We can't combine, we cannot comprehend this in our minds. It's impossible. It's going to lead to distortion if you're trying to. Speculation has always been the cause of uh, trouble and heresy whenever we try to think about things or understandings beyond what we are able to, beyond what we have been taught. When we try to pierce, if you will, the boundaries of heaven with our own minds and intellects. It is both. And only God can do this. Only God can perfectly unite and put into harmony things that are contrary and opposed to one another, i.e., the Incarnation. Christ's two natures, human and divine, i.e., the, the mystery of marriage, two people becoming one flesh without losing their individuality, i.e., that you and I become His tabernacles through communion. Only God can unite and put into perfect harmony those things which are opposed uh, and um, disconnected with one another. So what is the key? What is the key to unlocking this paradox, this theological paradox about eschatology? Climacus gave us a hint. For all those uh, reason-endowed beings who have been given the dignity of free will, they will be in this different this series of people in relationship to God. The key to unlocking this mystery about the Last Judgment is free will. Free will and personal accountability. You cannot love God. You cannot love anybody else for that matter unless you have free will. Love that is not freely given is not love at all. It's coercion. Free will that does not have real consequences 
is not free will. It's just manipulation. You have to have free will and personal accountability for there to be mercy and justice. The current epidemic of this culture in trying to excuse its sin, and sometimes even with the most absurd and ridiculous uh, rationale, this epidemic of trying to excuse our sin um, by claiming victimization is just a pathetic reversion to the Greco-Roman world of fatalism. The fatalism of the Roman, the Greco-Roman empires. In other words, we are just playthings for the gods. We're just playthings for the gods. I'm just a product of my environment. Don't blame me for my choices and actions. All of this victimization completely eradicates, erases free will, personal accountability. They are essential for the salvation of mankind. Having the free will to love God also means the freedom not to love God. With all of its destructive, horrible, tragic consequences. Yes, God is long-suffering, infinite in mercy, goodness, and kindness, and love. But he's not codependent. God is not codependent. He will not tolerate our indifference or our disdain for him forever. He will get his fruit from his vineyard. He does not pour out his love for nothing. He expects fruit from his vineyard, over which he has set custodians and even sent the sun. It's like what Isaiah said uh, concerning Israel. My, so my words shall go forth from my mouth and they will not come back to me empty. They will accomplish that for which I sent it. It will accomplish, uh, it will accomplish that for which I sent it. God will get his, uh, he will get returned for all of the love and the mercy and the blessings he has poured out upon us. So it's both an and, not either or. My brothers and my sisters, just as death, just as our sleep every single night is an image of the nature of death for us before we awake, sleep is an image of death before we awake every single night, and that the nature of death is this. It is not non-existence, it is a state of inactivity. So just as sleep is an image of death, so too great Lent is an image of the last judgment. It is a test before the test. Or it's like those, uh, those courses you take, you know, to prepare yourselves to take the SATs and the GREs and any other admissions tests to some graduate level uh, course of education, you know, to help you to prepare, to help you to succeed, to help you to pass the test. Great Lent is that for us every single year. So let us not avoid it. Let us not disdain it. Let us not, uh, what, um, have a negative attitude towards Great Lent. It is given to us as the test before the test. It is a time for us for self-examination. It is a time for confession. It is a time for correction. It is a time to get back on the narrow road. It is a time to become purified. Malachi says to Israel, 
You know, we would, they would, to the remnant of Israel, they will be put to the refiner's fire. The silver and the gold will be tested so that they will become pure and ready and now able to stand and come before the presence of the living God in his temple. That is what Great Lent can do for us. That is what Great Lent can give to us. So my brothers and my sisters, let's look ahead to the Great Lent. It's long. Eight weeks. Fasting. Prayer. Repentance. But it yields much fruit. Fruit that God is seeking from his vineyard. Fruit that will put us on his right hand and standing with the sheep in the kingdom of heaven for all of eternity. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.